1 Peter chapter 1, and uh, while you're turning there, let me, let me just remind you of what we've looked at together so far. Uh, we, we've seen Peter address these Christians as elect exiles of the dispersion, uh, meaning that these Christians were strangers in the world because they lived as resident aliens or foreigners on earth, as members of a kingdom that is not of this world. We've seen that they were scattered throughout the world in order to spread the word of God, to gospel the word, as we saw in the book of Acts. And in relation to God, we've seen that these Christians are special. Christians are special, not because of something inherent in them, but because according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, they have been chosen, sanctified in the Spirit, set apart for the obedience and blood of Jesus Christ. And then in verses 3 through 5, we, we saw that uh, God the Father has caused us to be born again uh, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We've been born anew to a living hope and a perfect inheritance and a salvation that is ready to be revealed at the appearance of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Now what Peter does in verses 6 through 9, which is where we're going to be focusing our attention today, Peter takes those gospel privileges and he applies them to Christians who are suffering uh, as a result of grievous trials, of difficulties in this world on account of their being uh, followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this is what we're, we're going to be thinking about uh, this morning. How should we think about and respond to trials in the Christian life? And to understand the passage, we're, we're going to frame it by asking uh, three questions. First, what are these various trials that Peter's speaking about? Second, how does Peter qualify these trials? And then third, how should we respond to them? So what are the trials? How are they qualified? And how should we respond? Let's go ahead and read uh, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 through 9, and hear God's word together. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him, and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Well, what comes to your mind when you hear the word persecution? What comes to your mind when you hear that word? Well, my mind... Uh, because of what's taking place right now in Afghanistan, my mind immediately goes to 
our brothers and sisters there and what they're currently facing. As you know, being a Christian in a place like Afghanistan was already an incredibly hard thing. But with the collapse of the Afghan government, the withdrawal of U.S. forces, and the return of the Taliban to power, things have gotten much, much worse for Christians there. They are now either in hiding or trying to escape for their lives. Some of you might know that earlier this summer, a number of pastors in Afghanistan made the decision uh, together to actually register with the Afghan government as Christian pastors. Uh, the motive behind that decision was they knew it would come at a cost, but they made that decision with the hope that it would make it easier for future generations of Christians to publicly uh, identify and live out their faith, identify as Christians and live out their Christian faith in Afghanistan. Well, fast forward a month, and things have have drastically changed for these brothers. And as the Taliban swept across Afghanistan, claiming territory after territory, I read of one Afghan pastor who received a letter actually from the Taliban, and it, it simply said, we know who you are, what you do, and where to find you. And just a few days later, they were knocking at this pastor's door. And thankfully, he had already gone into hiding. I read last week about another Afghan pastor who told a story about a dear friend, a fellow believer there, whose village was taken over. And when that happened, this man's 14-year-old daughter was, was ripped from his arms and forced into servitude and, of course, what is dubbed a marriage and her dutiful, her dutiful uh, Islamic privilege and responsibility. More and more stories are emerging of Christians being, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say, hunted down uh, with some folks of the Taliban going door to door, searching your house, searching your phone, and if they find any evidence that you're a Christian, they make you suffer for it. So it's understandable that many are are trying to get out of the country, but along with everybody else, they're finding it extremely hazardous and very difficult to get out of the country or to get to an airport where they can be flown out. Christians in Afghanistan uh, are certainly facing the various trials of which Peter speaks here in this passage. And brothers and sisters, we ought to be earnestly praying for them. Now, our experience here in the West, and particularly in the States, is is very different. None of us are are being forced into hiding. We don't live with the daily fear that somebody might come knocking on our door uh, to, 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 to harm us or to harm our loved ones. And so we might be thinking, does this mean that Peter's teaching, you know, isn't isn't really relevant for us? Or are we in some ways watering down what Peter is talking about in this passage to find relevance for our lives here in the U.S.? Is it, is it wrong for us to talk about trials we face when other Christians around the world are enduring more severe, more pressing trials than we are? 
I want to say not at all. Uh, I, I want us to appreciate the fact that Peter's words here are for all Christians throughout the world who are seeking to faithfully follow Jesus and live by his words. And my friends, this is teaching that we need to be familiar with if we are going to stand firm in the grace of God in trying times. So let's begin this morning with a basic question to try to understand what what is it that Peter's talking about? Um, And we need to start then with this question, what does Peter mean by various trials? Let's say, first of all, what he doesn't mean. Peter isn't referring to the, you know, the general suffering everyone may experience in this life as we live in a fallen world. He isn't talking about problems of any and every sort. He's talking about trials that stem from identifying with Jesus. He's talking about suffering for the sake of the name. He's talking about uh, our being conformed to the way of Christ and our conformity to that way is inevitably going to set us at odds with the, the values and the thinking and the commitments and practices of those around us. Now, I want to go down a, 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 a rabbit trail for just a few minutes and then we'll come back, I promise. But I think this will be helpful for us. I, I, want to, I want to think about how some Christians process and respond to suffering, suffering on account of being a Christian. Okay, So how some people think about and respond to suffering as a Christian. I think in our context, there are at least two extremes that we need to be aware of and that we need to avoid. Okay. On the one extreme, we have what could be called a persecution complex. Right? There are evangelical Christians who suffer from a persecution complex. And those who have this persecution complex typically respond in one of two ways. They may respond with what we could call escapism, right? retreat from the world entirely to avoid any suffering at all. Or they could respond a second way by engaging the world as a culture warrior. A culture warrior is usually somebody who's fairly grumpy and angry about all sorts of things, and they are in the fight, and they want you to join in the fight for a Christian America. And so on the one extreme, there's this persecution complex that we need to avoid that leads to responding either in escapism or some form of culture warrior Christianity. On the other hand, I think on another extreme, some today minimize trials that Christians face because they've wrongly concluded that the only thing that counts as persecution is, you know, uh, being tortured or martyred, something like that. I think both of these extremes are unhelpful. And in fact, I think Peter's teaching will help us to avoid both of them. So on the, on the perse- persecution complex side, if you read through First Peter as a whole, you'll notice he certainly isn't encouraging 
escapism. He, he wants Christians in the Christian community, community to be engaged in the world. He wants them to be on mission in the world, proclaiming the excellencies of him who's called us out of darkness into his marvelous light, always ready to give a reason for the hope that we have within us. But notice as well that our mission is not that of the cultural warrior who is fighting to secure a Christian or maintain a so-called Christian America. Instead, Peter calls believers to the way of Jesus, which is described throughout this letter in terms of blessing our enemies, living upright and honorable lives, submitting to the governing authorities, proclaiming the gospel and rejoicing in the face of trials, much to the bewilderment of the world around us. So 1 Peter is a clear no to persecution complex. It's also a clear no to the escapism or the culture warrior Christianity that that follows on the tales of that. But Peter's teaching is also, I think, a clear no to anyone attempting to minimize the varied trials that Christians experience throughout the world for following Jesus. Persecution takes other forms than being imprisoned or martyred or tortured for the cause. We need to appreciate this, brothers and sisters, that persecution can happen here. It can happen in polite society. It can happen through speech. It can happen in family relationships. It can happen amongst friends. It can happen in the workplace and in the public square, and all these things, whether, whether we want to use the language of persecution or not, certainly are part and parcel of what Peter is talking about when he talks about Christians being grieved by various trials. And so what I'm after here is I want you to appreciate, brothers and sisters, that these verses are for you. You ought not to be robbed of the truth of what Peter is speaking about in this text. Because the truth is, some of you have experienced grievous trials for following Jesus. Some of you are experiencing trials for the sake of Christ's name. You might be taking heat from people in your life for for putting Christ first. Some of you might have a spouse who gives you a difficult time for seeking to faithfully follow Jesus each and every day of your life. You might have friends who are pressuring you saying, would you just stop taking this Christian faith thing so seriously? Some of us have lost relationships. You've lost parents, siblings, friends for the gospel who these folks now want nothing to do with you because of your commitment to Christ. You have been grieved by various trials, and Peter wants to encourage you by teaching you how to view those trials, how to think about them, and how to respond to them. And so before we ask how Peter qualifies trials, let me just give you one example from Peter's letter to these Christians of the kind of trials that they were facing. These Christians spread throughout Asia Minor. At this point, these Christians were not experiencing physical persecution in the sense of what would come. 
Right? Later on, under the, the reign of Emperor Nero, when physical persecution would break out throughout the Roman Empire. I didn't come yet, but it would come down the line. But one of the things that Peter mentions here that might surprise us, one of the trials these Christians faced is that they were being slandered. Sin of speech. Their reputations were being maligned. They were being reviled falsely in the public eye. Take a look at 1 Peter chapter 2. We already read verse 11 this morning, but listen to verse 12 as well. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, just notice there's that theme of um, exilic life once again. Uh, Peter's Peter thinking, okay, you've got to think in terms of living in Babylon. Right? This, is, this is Daniel in Babylon. That's, that's the, the, the frame of thinking that Peter is encouraging here. Urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Verse 12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Now, did you notice How strange that is, what Peter actually said. Peter tells them to live honorably, uprightly, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds. In other words, Peter's assumption is they are going to speak evil things against you. They are going to call you evildoers, but Peter is urging them Therefore, to live in such a way that those accusations do not stick. That they have no place. And so the mouth of the accuser is silenced. That's what Peter's getting at here. But he's saying you are going to be called an evildoer if you identify with Jesus and uphold his words in the world. And so slander, uh, a sin of speech, right? Having one's reputation destroyed by false speech. This is one of the trials Peter mentions. People saying things about you on account of your faith that are just, you know, straight up false. Um, People maligning a church's reputation in a community that actually has no relation to the truth. Now, of course, we have to recognize lamentably and tragically there are often cases of individual Christians and Christian communities where such accusations are warranted. And that's a shame. And it's something that brings dishonor to the name of Jesus Christ and hinders our Christian witness in the world. And Peter is saying, though, it ought not be that way. But as you live upright and honorable lives, you can expect to be accused of evil doing in the world. Peter teaches it. Jesus taught it. Remember Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, verse 11. He says, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. So you see what Jesus is saying there, look, when you identify with me, if you're one of my followers, you're going to be reviled. People are going to speak evil things against you falsely, and you can count on that. Okay, so there's just one example. We're going to see other examples as we continue to work 
through this letter. But this is among the various trials of which Peter is speaking about. And so when we think about trials for being a Christian in the world, let's, let's avoid these two extremes, right? On the one hand, seeing everything as persecution, right? The, the persecution complex individual is, so we're clear about this, this is, this is the person who, you know, uh, interprets every negative personal experience. You know, this person said something mean to me, and it's because I'm a Christian. Maybe, or maybe it's just because you were being a jerk. I don't know. <laughs> That's a possibility. Um, or the person with uh, the persecution complex tends to interpret every event they see in society as an attack upon Christianity. Again, maybe. <laughs> but we need to be more careful and nuanced. On the other hand, we want to avoid this extreme of having our imagination informed uh, so much by stories of, you know, tortured for being tortured for Christ, being, you know, back in the 90s, it was being a Jesus freak. Remember the DC Talk song? At one point, I could rap that whole song as a kid. And it really shaped my imagination about what it meant to really be a serious Christian, a Jesus freak. And if somebody asked me then, what does it mean to be persecuted? I would have said, well, you, you know, burn at the stake. There's much more to it than that. As Peter speaks about various trials. Actually, the word he uses for various is elsewhere translated in the New Testament as you know, many colored, multivaried. So it appears in different forms. And so whether it's more subtle discrimination and mistreatment, or outright physical persecution. These are grief-inducing trials resulting from living for Christ in the world. And when Peter's talking about various trials, then he's, he's talking about social, economic, political, relational, and the physical costs for seeking to faithfully follow Jesus. So let's go to the second question, Okay. Uh, second question, how does Peter qualify these trials? He actually makes two very important qualifications to help us put these trials in proper perspective. And before we talk about those two qualifications, just notice at the start what Peter doesn't say. He doesn't say, look, now that you've become a Christian, grief is going to be gone, Right? Trials and trouble will vanish. It's going to be smooth sailing from here. Actually, he says that because you are a Christian, you are now going to experience grief in this life that you otherwise would not have experienced. He concedes that while the future is bright for Christians, that present circumstances may very well be pretty miserable. You see, the, the joy we experience, he's helping us understand, the joy we experience as Christians doesn't make the trials any less real. And so there is this honest assessment, and, and an, oddly enough, I think an encouraging assessment of being grieved by trials, yet Peter qualifies these in two important ways that I think offers us further encouragement. 
So notice the first qualification. The first qualification is that these various trials are temporary. They're not forever. They won't endure into eternity. He's helping us understand that temporary trials are relativized in comparison to eternity. You notice the language in verse 5? Though now for a little while... If necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. See what he's doing. Without minimizing suffering, we always need to remember that trials aren't forever. And I think remembering that, what's it do? Well, it makes it more bearable, doesn't it? It helps us to keep going, to persevere, to, to, to remind ourselves and to remind each other, it isn't going to be like this forever. Salvation is ready to be revealed, as Peter has just said. There's an inheritance being kept for you in heaven that is going to be enjoyed. Now, it may not feel like it now, but one day, Peter's saying, these trials will come to an end. And in the end, those trials will actually appear to you to be a small, insignificant thing compared to the blessing to come. Now, if you think that's a, you know, too radical of a way of putting it, it's actually exactly how the Apostle Paul puts it. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17, here's, he, here's, here's Paul. He compares momentary affliction to the eternal weight of glory, which is beyond all comparison. You see what Paul's saying? You you know, if you take your trials and you take the weight of glory, it's not like you can put them on a scale and compare them. Right? The weight of glory just shatters the scale. To the point where the momentary affliction, the grievous trials that Christians experience in this life, will seem like a small thing, a nothing even, in comparison to the weight of glory and the blessing for those who are in Christ Jesus. You'll notice as well in Paul's words, he, he says that the momentary affliction is preparing us for the weight of glory. We're not going to get into what he means by that, but just notice that what he's saying is the momentary affliction is purposeful. And that's, that's actually the, the second qualification that Peter makes, but in a different way. That not only are these various trials temporary, but they're purposeful. Those are the two qualifications. Various trials are temporary and purposeful. What an encouragement this is, because what are we so quick to ask when we are grieved by a trial? Why why is this happening? What, What could God intend by this? Why is God allowing this to happen to us? Why is God allowing this to happen to them? It may not be obvious, but take encouragement from this. We have the assurance that none none of your grief, none of the grievous trials that you have experienced or will experience will ever be in vain. They will never be meaningless. And they will never in the end prove to be fruitless. 
If you look at verse 7, you'll see part of, part of God's purpose for various kinds of trials. So what, what purpose does suffering trials for Jesus' sake have? Take a look at verse 7. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is refined by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What's Peter saying? He's saying suffering proves the genuineness of faith resulting in praise, glory, and honor to Jesus Christ. Think about it this way. You know, Satan and the world, when they, when they seek to bring trials into your life, they have a purpose. And that purpose is to get you to renounce your faith, expose it as false, and to seek to bring dishonor to Jesus Christ. And what does Peter say actually happens? What, what is accomplished in the lives of God's people through grievous trials? They test faith so that trust in Christ in any and all circumstances is proved to us and others to be the genuine type of faith that results in praise and glory and honor to Jesus Christ. Peter's saying, in other words, it accomplishes the very opposite of what the world intends. You see that? The world imposes trials to get you to renounce faith, but God's purpose is to use those trials to authenticate your faith, which will resound to the praise, honor, and glory of Jesus Christ and those who are his. So friends, don't, don't make these two mistakes. Don't make the mistake of confusing the testing of your faith with a failure of faith. That's the first mistake. Don't confuse the testing of your faith with the failure of faith. And the second thing is don't think that trials on account of your faith implies that you have an inadequate faith. See what Peter uses here? He uses this imagery of gold being refined by fire. Now gold was the most precious metal, though it was still perishable. It was the most precious metal known at the time. And gold was, you know, smelted by fire, and, and that did two things. It burned out impurities, anything that was not genuine, and proved what was pure gold. And so with the imagery, Peter is saying, right, fiery trials are doing two things. Burning away what isn't genuine, while at the same time proving what's authentic. Isn't that exactly what we see happen through trials. The pressure of trials exposes what's not real and authenticates what is. And so Peter is saying that faith is sometimes smelted in the fire of trials. And faith that has been proven will be shown to be the most precious thing in the world. Because it will be the means by which we are delivered from the final fiery trial that is to come at the return of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And so in this life, Peter's saying, if you identify with Jesus and you uphold his words in the world, you can expect 
to be grieved by various trials. But remember, remember that the trials will not last forever and the trials are not meaningless. They are temporary and they will one day give weight, uh, way to the, the eternal weight of glory. And they, they have a purpose, proving and authenticating the most precious thing in the world, which is faith in Jesus Christ. That brings us to the last question, which really brings us back to the beginning of our passage. How should we respond then in the midst of trials? And Peter tells us we can rejoice knowing that we possess a joy that transcends the grief of trials. See that? Verse 6 begins, in this you rejoice. Now, This refers back to the gospel privileges that Peter was just praising God for in verses 3 through 5. God the Father has caused us to be born again through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to a living hope in a living Savior, to an inheritance whose sum and substance is none other than God himself, and to a secure salvation that is ready to be revealed On the day of Christ's appearing. It's ready because it's been already won and secured. By the life, death, resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ. In this you rejoice, Peter says. But still, you know, on a surface reading of verse 6. It just sounds absurd, doesn't it? In this you rejoice. Present tense. It's important to understand that. He's not talking about a future rejoicing. He's talking about a present rejoicing. While the privileges will not be fully enjoyed until Jesus returns, the possession of them now by new birth produces joy in the Christian life right now. And so he says, in this you rejoice right now, though now, okay, so at the same time, they're rejoicing, Now, for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. Now, if you really wrestle with that, it leaves your head spinning. You've got to think, well, which is it? (laughs) Grieving or rejoicing? Grief or joy? And the right answer is it's both. It's both. In the midst of real grief, we rejoice. We can rejoice in the midst of Dismal circumstances, what what Paul and Silas did when they were locked up in prison, singing hymns of praise to God. It's what brothers and sisters in places like Afghanistan and other parts of the world can do under threat of life and limb. They rejoice knowing that their life is totally secure in Christ Jesus. How can that be? Well, they have the answer back in verses 3 through 5 because they've been born anew to things which the trials of this life cannot ever touch or take away. Now, I wonder wonder if you feel the challenge of of Peter's teaching the the way that I do as I've been reflecting upon it for the last week or so. Here's a real litmus test for us, okay? When, When real trouble, when real trials come into our lives because of our relation to Jesus Christ, 
What is our response going to be? That's a real litmus test, isn't it? Do we have the disposition of you know, the early Christians in the book of Acts and other Christians throughout church history who, when they were called upon to suffer for the name, they rejoiced? Of course, I am not saying that Christians shouldn't care about civil rights and religious freedom. There is a proper place in our political structure for appealing to civil rights, as Paul did as a citizen of Rome. But here's a real litmus test for us. Is our response to trials for being Christians motivated by a sense of entitlement and grievance or with the understanding that this is our lot in this world? This is our lot in this life. That we may be called upon to give up house, father, mother, siblings, friends, And we will inherit a hundredfold, as Jesus says. But in this life, as we were reminded last Sunday evening, there will be trouble. So will people see the trials that we experience as cause for joy that the world can't explain? Or as a source of grievance or a denial of something that we feel we are entitled to? That's often the response, I think, of those who are caught up in these the so-called culture wars, and frankly, it's a response that is badly out of sync with what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that we can and ought to expect trials for our faith. It doesn't mean the trials are good. It doesn't mean that we can't talk about civil rights and freedom when those things are being genuinely violated. It's not wrong for us to be invested in those sorts of things. As an act of love for our neighbor, but not at the neglect of remembering that trials are the inevitable, Peter uses the word, necessary experience of Christians in this world. Because this is how the world treated Christ. It's how it will treat those who are being conformed to Christ. And friends, instead of being angry and bitter and complaining We're being reminded here that we're to rejoice because of what we have in Christ. Because we know the trials are temporary and purposeful. And we're to rejoice like the apostles did before the council. That we have been counted worthy to suffer for the name. See, a spirit of entitlement... Let's recognize we live in a culture of entitlement, don't we? Can we all agree on that? That we live in a culture of entitlement. Don't we need to then say that a spirit of entitlement is unbecoming of a Christian? Spirit of entitlement is unbecoming of a Christian. It, It doesn't fit. And it doesn't fit because it's not how Jesus lived. It isn't the way that he conducted himself In this world, how did he live? Well, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. He embraced the shame of the cross. I think what Hebrews is really saying, counting it a small thing in comparison to the joy that lay on the other side. And if we're we're being conformed to the way of Jesus, which is what 1 Peter is all about, then we will not be known for a spirit of entitlement, but a spirit of joy in the midst of trials. 
And what a challenge and what a reminder this is for the church today. It's something I need to be reminded of. You see, being born again to a living hope, an indestructible inheritance, and a secure salvation that is ready to be revealed, it produces something in the Christian life. An ability to rejoice while being grieved at the same time. And so listen, I I really, I don't know uh, what trials we may face for being Christians in our lifetime. You know, it could be more of what we're already witnessing, the gradually increasing marginalization and discrimination against Christians taking place in society right now. Or it could be that circumstances could rapidly change like they did in Afghanistan. And things could become much more difficult for Christians here. We don't know. What we do know is this, that no matter what we are called to endure and face. Brothers and sisters, we are absolutely secure in the grace of God. And that means we can rejoice. And it's actually a fundamental part of our Christian witness to the world. I think laughter is actually a part of this as well. As a, as a component of joy, laughing in the face of trials, because we know that whatever the world might throw at us, it can't actually harm us. And don't we need to be reminded of this? In this culture of entitlement and rights to focus once again upon our privileges, to see afresh the the wonders and the riches of God's grace to us in Christ Jesus in order to stir and ignite within us Hearts of worship and joy and an attitude of gratitude in the midst of a culture that is just immersed in misery and bitterness and complaining. And when we face grievous trials then, that means we will will be able to see our suffering through the lens of our privileges and remember then at the same time that those trials are temporary And those trials are purposeful. And so brothers and sisters, let me me close with this part of the passage that we didn't really get to look at together this morning. And just address them to you. Though you have not seen Jesus, you love him. And he loves you too. And though you do not currently see him, you trust him. What does Peter say? So you can rejoice right now in the midst of trials with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. May the Lord give us the grace to be such a people. Let's pray. Lord and our God, we thank you for the the riches of your word and how it speaks to our lives and helps us make sense of trials that we are called to experience as we seek to follow Jesus in this world. As we face trials now and in the future, help us to recall these truths, the salvation, the inheritance, and the hope that we have, and to remember that these trials are temporary and purposeful in your 
good providence. Help us in whatever circumstance we find ourselves to rejoice, knowing that we are yours and that the salvation that you have blessed us with can never be taken away. And send us forth, therefore, from here this morning, rejoicing in your good grace. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.